0: The story is told about a pilot who always looked down intently on a certain valley in the Appalachians when the plane passed overhead. One day, his co-pilot asked, what's so interesting about that spot? The pilot replied, see that stream? Well, when I was a kid, I used to sit down there on a log and fish. Every time an airplane flew over, I would look up and wish I were flying. Now, I look down. And wish I was fishing. So this illustration reveals the heart of man, the heart of people. No matter what we have, we always wish that it were different. One of the reasons we are discontent is because the natural meaning the unregenerate fleshly heart of man is always searching for something to satisfy his desire. The natural position of the unregenerate heart is to be dissatisfied and discontent. And so tonight we are going to kind of finish up our study here on the topic of contentment. And the reason why I wanted to do this is because For this very reason, that we struggle with being content. We struggle to have a heart that is at rest in God, in his character, in who he is, what he has promised. And, of course, if we're discontent in general, that is going to come into our marriages. And this is a hugely broad topic, and I could have picked a passage and just gone through a passage, and instead I decided to try try and... Make this practical to marriage. And so it is topical tonight. And uh, we're going to look at probably things that are actually pretty familiar to you. But we're going to be talking about how this works itself out in our marriages with our husbands. Because we need to be content. God has given us the husbands and the marriages that he has ordained for his specific will and purpose in our lives. And it is a good thing. And I think we all would agree to that, Uh, maybe not in every moment, (laughs) but generally we would agree with that. So that's what we're going to do tonight, is we are going to talk through some of those things. So as we consider the unregenerate heart of man, obviously we're not going to be here for long, but I do think it's important to at least begin here. Because the unbeliever can never be truly satisfied, can never be truly content. Because they can never find their satisfaction and contentment in God. Because God gives that to us through his spirit who indwells us when we become believers. So, in Ecclesiastes one eight, Solomon talks about this. He says, all things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor is the ear filled with hearing the idea here is that the eye is always craving more the ear is always craving more our desires are always for something different and a lot of times when we think about contentment we think about it in context of material things of more money of more wealth of more stuff but contentment actually really is in every area of our lives, in our circumstances, in our relationships, in all these places. We do not want to be like the unregenerate man who is never satisfied, who is never content. Proverbs twenty-seven twenty says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. Again, it's just reiterating that same point. So I decided this is actually one of your little handouts there. I think it's on your very front page with the title. It's a little test by Lou Priello, And actually, like I like to show you, little uh, helpful resources here. So this is just a really tiny little booklet. So if you struggle with contentment, here you go. Discontentment, Why Am I So Unhappy by Lou Priolo. And actually, I didn't really take a whole bunch out of here. I took a couple of things, and I gave those to you. His little test. So if you know much about Lou Priello, he loves to give tests, and he loves for you to grade yourself. I'm not going to have you grade yourself tonight, but I am going to go through some of these questions. His Was about, I think it was 25 questions. So if you want to get actually really into this, I just chose ones that I felt like were more applicable to marriage, being that that's what we're talking about. So, and what I did, so his is in black and mine is in, I don't know what color yours came out to be. It's gray here. Anyways, my thoughts underneath, how does this apply to marriage? How can I evaluate my heart in marriage? So number one, I am prone to, and you can like, You can score yourself if you want to, um, like five being yes, I always do this, and zero being no, I never do that. But you don't have to, just kind of track along with me. So, number one, I am prone to murmur and complain when things in my life do not go as I wish. So, perhaps you would say, I complain when my husband disagrees with me or does things I don't like. Number two, I get distracted and have difficulty focusing on my God-given responsibilities when things do not go according to my expectations. So we might think about it in marriage. It's difficult for me to act kindly and loving toward my husband when he doesn't cooperate with my desires or plans. Number three, I give in to discouragement rather than trust God when it seems that my hopes and desires are not going to be fulfilled. I am discouraged and feel like God has failed me when it seems as though my husband won't love me the way I want him to, as is laid out in Scripture. Because we're really good at bringing Scripture into this. But this is what Scripture says he's supposed to do, and he's not doing it. And it's very easy when we measure our husband up to Scripture to be discontent with how he is treating us, living, whatever it is that he's doing. Number four, I am more motivated by how the things I want will please me than how they will glorify God. So in our marriage, I am willing to argue with my husband or give him the silent treatment to get what I want rather than considering how I should respond so that God is glorified. Number five, I am willing to sin in order to get what I want. So in marriage, I am willing to yell, be unkind, cry, Pout, withhold sex, or give my husband the silent treatment to convince him to give me my own way. Just tactics of manipulation, right? Number six, I become angry in undesirable circumstances that I cannot control. In marriage, perhaps, I become angry when my husband makes decisions I believe are unwise. Number seven, I become angry when someone in a position of authority asks me to do something that I don't want to do, and I can't persuade that authority to change his or her mind. Well, God has given our husbands authority in our homes, right? So, in marriage, I become angry when my husband makes his mind up about... Oh, I already... No, that's right. That I disagree with. Number eight. I get bored with my life and wish it were more interesting or exciting. So in marriage, I get bored with my husband and wish we could act more like when we were dating. It's really easy to do that when you get in the thick of children and work and careers and buying houses and trying to establish your life and to reflect back and go, I wish that we were the way we used to be when we were dating, when he loved to take me out, when he had energy for wooing me and and having a good time. We can find every single which way there is to be discontent about something. So number nine, I become irritable when people do things that cut into my free time. In marriage, I am irritable when my husband interrupts my me time, such as my social media break or you fill in the blank there for whatever that might be for you. Number 10, I wish I could live a life of ease with more pleasure than work. So in marriage, I am frustrated and impatient with my husband when he doesn't do more to help me around the house or with the kids. Number 11, I sometimes think that I have missed God's best for my life. In marriage, I sometimes wonder if I married the wrong person. Number 12, I feel like I will always be trapped in my present circumstances. And in marriage, I feel trapped in this marriage and have given up hope that my husband will change. So if you can put a little check next to those, then you could probably consider yourself a fairly discontent person. <laughs> and I think depending on where we are and every given day, we could probably, at one way or another, look at our lives and go, yeah, I wrestle with discontentment. Uh, Craig and I have been talking about this quite a bit over the last couple of days, and he just was saying how, yeah, discontentment is just always before you. It is always there. And I would actually recommend, if you can, I'm not going to talk about it here, but I actually taught on, it wasn't discontentment, it was actually on, I don't remember the title, it was the last Friday morning Bible study. But why we need to be careful to not be influenced by the world because this is what the world is doing all the time. This is the entire goal of our world who is ruled by Satan is to distract us and keep us from being satisfied in Christ. And what does that mean if we're not satisfied in Christ? It means we're discontent. Now, I did not come from an angle of contentment or discontentment. I came from an angle of being satisfied in the Lord and being on guard against the world. But you guys need to know the importance of that. It is massively important because everything in our world is geared to make you wish you had different circumstances, different people, different amounts of money, different place to live. Everything different than what God has given you. And ultimately, is pride and his rebellion against what God has, has given us for our good based on his sovereignty. So, anyways, if you can go back and listen to that, it, it goes nicely with this. But it is something, discontentment, it is something that we are always wrestling in our hearts against. How easy it is for us to be like the man in the airplane... Before we get married, we are so impatient to get married, we can tend to be discontent in our state of singleness, longing for the day we will be married to the man of our dreams. Once we are married, it is easy to long for children. When we dream dream of how wonderful it will be to have our own little baby to love and to hold, then once we have a husband and children with all the responsibilities and the lack of sleep and all that kind of stuff that accompany it, We long for days of freedom, when we could do whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted. We are just like the man who was flying. When he was a kid, he longed to be in the plane, and when he was an adult, he longed to be fishing, just always wishing something was different than what it is. So what is this idea of discontentment? What is the definition? So... This is the definition, uneasy or inquietude of mind. This is from Webster's 1828. So uh, uneasiness or inquietude of mind, dissatisfaction at any present state of things, just never truly satisfied. The bottom line is this, no matter what we get in life, it will never satisfy People and circumstances will never bring contentment because contentment is a disposition of heart that is the result of being satisfied in God, trusting implicitly in his sovereignty and his goodness. So I am going to draw from Lou Priolo again because he actually gave a fairly good definition here. And actually it was pretty similar to one that I had heard from John MacArthur in a different sermon. excuse me, sermon that I was listening to. So Lupriolo defines contentment as this. The idea is a God-dependent self-sufficiency. So the word contentment in scripture, it means self-sufficiency, but that we would look at that just by itself and go, wait a minute, we're not supposed to be self-sufficient because that would be like apart from God. No, it is a self-sufficiency but it is dependent on God. We are self-sufficient because we are dependent on God. So I'll keep reading what he says here. That is a kind of self-sufficiency that is dependent on God's abundant resources rather than one's own. If you are content, you have, by God's grace, the inner resources to, to face living without those outward things that others depend on for their happiness If you are content, you will not depend on any outward resources for your source of strength. If you are content, you are not needing to depend on your husband acting just how you want him to act. You are not dependent on your husband giving you what you want. You are not dependent on your husband changing even according to scripture, to be more godly. But this is the mindset that we get in our heads. I can't change until he changes. I can't make a difference in my life until he has changed and done X, Y, Z. And I see this oftentimes in the counseling room with women who are wrestling in their marriages. It's almost like they dig in their heels because until they see him change, they refuse. And it is because they are not content in the Lord. They are not satisfied in God and who he is, finding their purpose. Fulfilled in God. And so because of that, they constantly are putting expectations and demands on their husbands who are sinners just like themselves. And I say they, but really, this is me if I am not careful to keep my mind focused on the truth of God's word. Choosing. This is a choice so much of the time. Intentionally choosing to be content in who God says he is and what he has given me, in his blessings, even in the things that he takes away, even in the sufferings, because the sufferings actually are for our good. We'll talk about that in a minute. So Lupriolo goes on to include a few statements about contentment that I thought were helpful, and actually I put those on your sheet as well so that you can take them home and review them if you wanted to. So there are seven things, I believe. So number one, Contentment is realizing that God has already provided everything that a person needs to glorify and enjoy Him. And just to let you know, in his little booklet, these are like little categories, and then he's got full explanations. I'm just whetting your appetite here, basically. So you can get the booklet and read the rest of this if you want to. But I felt like it was a good outline anyways, just to kind of get our minds thinking about contentment. So number two, contentment is realizing that true satisfaction can come only from building one's life around those things that cannot be taken away or destroyed. Building our life around that which is eternal. This is very hard at any stage of life but it is particularly, I think, difficult for younger people because you haven't had the experience, you haven't had some of the hard knocks of life that have driven you to the Word of God, but you have to keep in mind that you will never be satisfied unless you prioritize the things that God prioritizes from His Word. Number three, contentment is delighting in God more than in anything else. Number four, contentment is being able to adjust the level of one's desire to the condition and purpose chosen for him by God. Every circumstance that God brings into our life, every relationship, every person, has been brought to us, chosen for us, by a good and loving God. And we, it is our duty, it is our responsibility to learn, to be joyful in whatever those things are, even when they're hard. Number five, contentment is willingly submitting to and delighting in God's wise and loving disposal in every condition of life. Willingly submitting to, and what's the the next word? Delighting in. Your husband, perhaps, Has a different idea than you. Has different thoughts than you. Different preferences. Different personality than you. Are you willing to delight in God in the midst of that? That's your responsibility. Number six. Contentment is knowing how to use the things of the world without being engrossed in them. So that means that, okay, what did Paul say? We live in the world, but we are not of the world. So yeah, we have to live in the world, but we are not uh, influenced to the point of, of living according to the world. We live in it, but without it dictating how and what we do. Number seven, contentment is thanking God even in circumstances in which one used to murmur and complain. So it might be helpful to think like I mean, I guess you can do it now, but if you go home and think about it tonight or tomorrow, just, just contemplate. What are the things that I murmur and complain about? Like, what are, what are the normal things that I find frustrating, irritating in my life that I have a tendency to just immediately... It's like, you know, you know that feeling that you get when something crosses your will and it's like that thing triggers it? Think about what that is and then consider this. Contentment is thanking God even in circumstances, circumstances in which one used to murmur and complain. When you feel that in your heart, that thing that triggers you, immediately think, I should be thanking the Lord here rather than feeling this frustration. So I am going to try and answer three questions tonight. Why, what, and how? So our first question on your outline is why should we learn contentment? So I'm going to try and explain just a very little bit of this. As I said, this is a broad topic. But I'm going to begin with asking this question, why? Why does it matter if we are content? Why should we be concerned about being content? I mean, after all, don't we just want to be happy? Like, isn't that what the world tells us? We deserve to be happy. What could be wrong with wanting to be happy and pursuing things that will make you happy? Is there anything wrong with that? Well, we're going to find out. Let me tell you what is wrong with it. When we pursue personal happiness, it causes us to focus on who? Ourselves. We cease to focus on We've ceased to focus on what God desires for us, and we cease to consider others as more important than ourselves. When we become focused on self and making ourselves happy, we become discontent when we don't get the thing that we think will make us happy. Because that's the thing, right? We always think it will make us happy. That's why we want it. But even more than that, when we do get the thing that we believe will make us happy, it only gives us a temporary Feeling of satisfaction. It never lasts. As soon as the excitement from getting what we wanted wears off, we long for something else to make us feel happy again. Do you know they've actually done secular studies about this and like have information about this out there and they call it something I don't remember? But there's like, even the secular world realizes this is an unhealthy way to live. And yet this is the way everybody lives apart from Christ. Why should we strive to be content? Because it pleases God. A person who is content brings glory to God because contentment is a fruit of the Spirit. It is only found in a heart that abides in Christ and one whose heart is fully satisfied in Christ. So why should we learn contentment? So that God is glorified in our lives. That's capital A on your outline. Every week in this study, we have continually reminded ourselves of our need to glorify God in our marriages. I think, I think almost every week I have mentioned that. What is the purpose of marriage? In one form or the other, we have talked about what is our goal. Our goal is that our marriage would glorify and honor God. And that is true as it pertains to contentment as well. Another way God is glorified is when we display the characteristic of contentment. This topic has surfaced several times in actually the Friday morning study and here. And I actually, sometimes I wonder where my brain is. Like I can teach something and I feel like I just keep trudging along. And I just look back. It was at the beginning of the Friday morning Bible study and I taught on the whole topic of contentment. And so I went back like, this afternoon, I was like, oh, look at that right there. Anyways, I'm teaching it from a totally different angle this time, but uh, it just goes to show you how often we wrestle with this and what a big deal it really is. Um, I have been reminded that everything in our culture is geared to cause us to live in a state of constant discontentment. It is designed to keep our desires focused on temporal things that will provide the illusions of satisfaction and contentment but without actually delivering it. The society we live in lures us into believing that we can find satisfaction and happiness in the things it offers, but it is only an illusion. The happiness it advertises is only fleeting at best. It just can never, ever supply what it promises to deliver. True satisfaction can only come from God. And so I'm just going to, again, give you just a couple of verses here just because you need to see it and hear it from Scripture. So Psalm 107, verses 8 and 9 says this, Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. For He has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul He has filled with what is good. If you find yourself discontent, agitated, discouraged, despairing with life, what does it say? He has satisfied the thirsty soul. Are you a thirsty soul? Are you going to the living water to get your soul satisfied? Psalm 1611 says, you will make known to me the path of life in your presence is full fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. If we want fullness of joy, if we want pleasures forever, if we want what the world is telling us that it can give us, we do not go to the world. We go to our God and we learn who he is from his word. God is not glorified in us when we are When we are seeking, God is not, I'm not sure what I'm saying here. God is not glorified in us when we are seeking contentment, satisfaction, or happiness in anything apart from him. Okay. I agree with myself now. (laughs) Like, wait a minute. I added a word or something. Why? Because at the root of our desire for personal happiness is a desire to please self, not God. At the root of discontentment Is ultimate selfishness it is all about me and that's why I'm discontent and that's pretty sobering when we recognize in our marriages especially when we're pointing at our husband and blaming him for whatever it is to stop and think I am entirely discontent right now and it's because I am entirely absorbed with myself and that's why I'm upset with my husband Maybe I should not be quite so upset with him and focus on myself because I clearly am the one with a huge issue in this moment. So remember what John Piper said God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied. In Him, If we want to glorify God in our marriages, we will first and foremost be satisfied in Him. And that means that everything in our life travels first through the grid of Scripture that we might be obedient to that. Everything else is peripheral. It should fall to the wayside. We do not pursue all these things that the world tells us. And I think one of the things that concerns me the most is not, even though this is a big deal, like the the materialism and that kind of thing, and even the entertainment, like those are big things if they are dominating your life and your desires. But I think, honestly, it is the subtle things that change how we think about our priorities. It's those subtle things that distract us. And I tell you what, they're everywhere homeschooling, diet, uh, food, um, gardening, homesteading, houses, all these things that we put priorities on that are not truly biblical. They're okay in their place, but if they are taken out of their place, if they are no longer secondary and they become primary in our pursuits, then we have entirely lost our satisfaction in Christ. And we absolutely cannot afford to do that. And I see like on uh, social media and all those things, all of the messages that are trying to get you guys' attention. And it just, I don't know. I hope it's righteous anger because I don't want it to lead you astray. I don't want you to believe it. There are so many things. And you know what else happens as as a result of pursuing wrong things? It causes division in the church. We are no longer unified. When I think that... This thing is most important. How I school my kids is the most important thing. And you do it differently, then I'm going to embrace my thing so tightly and you're going to feel bad about it because I think I'm doing it most godly. And what does that do to the unity in the church? It separates, it divides. That's what the world is trying to do. That's what Satan is trying to do. All of those things we cannot Be distracted by them. They destroy our lives, they destroy our marriages, they destroy our children. And when we pursue those things, trying to find satisfaction in them, oh, we still come to church and we still bring our children to church and we might even still do quiet time worship with the family. But our kids know what's important to us. And how many children have been raised in Christian homes while their parents? have not prioritized satisfaction in Christ. And then these children grow up thinking they can choose whatever they want. I'm absolutely passionate about this because you have to know how important this is. Your first and primary purpose in life is to know your God, to know his word. It ought to be your driving passion every single day to get into his word, to study it so that you have something to give to somebody else to encourage them so that you can grow. That was not a new part of my notes. I should stick to my notes. But this is so important. That's why I go up on these little soap boxes. So B, all right, B. So, what was our question again? Where is my question? It's way up here. Why should we learn contentment? Okay, B. Because discontentment is accompanied by so many other sins. So, I'm not going to give all the passages of Scripture that go along with these because I just don't have time, but I just wanted you to at least hear it and be aware of it. So, uh, what are some of these other sins that, that accompany discontentment? Idolatry, wanting something more than you want to please God. Uh, Fear also accompanies discontentment. Rather than trusting God with your desire, you become fearful that you may not get it. The fear of man, your desire for others to like you or approve of you leads to discontentment when you don't get their approval. Selfishness. We already mentioned that one. You are more focused on pleasing yourself than God or others. Grumbling and complaining. Anger and frustration. Being contentious or argumentative. Nagging. Remember Proverbs talks about the woman who's the steady drip on a rainy day. Lack of love and lack of kindness. we could just say a lack of the fruit of the spirit because if we aren't being loving, we certainly don't have self-control and joy and peace and all the others. Despair, depression, discouragement. Uh, The psalmist refers to that as being cast down. When you don't get what you want, when you don't get your own way, you are unhappy. Self-pity, victim mentality. You believe you deserve better than what you have. This is of course incredibly popular in our culture today. we have to be really careful that we don't adopt the mindset of self-pity in our marriages because we very easily do it and we feel, "Oh poor me, woe is me because look what he didn't do or look what he did do and then we feel sorry for ourselves we're discontent. So those are those two reasons um, are the reasons that we need to Strive to be content because we do not want to end up in the middle of all this other sin. If you notice, like sin just comes in a big package deal, you know? It's like you got one, you got a whole bunch of them. So number two, Roman numeral two, what do we need to do to cultivate contentment? So A, acknowledge the depth of your sinful discontentment. So Psalm 139, 23, and 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This needs to be our prayer, because God is the one who can reveal to us areas of discontentment in our lives. Ask yourself the hard, heart-probing questions. Ask God to help you recognize sin in your heart. Ask things like, what do I want? Why do I want it? What have I been waiting for in order to be content? Because that's kind of one of the deceptions of contentment, right? We always think it's just right there. If I just get that, I'll be content. If I could just have that, I'll be content. But the fact of the matter is, We'll never actually get to contentment if that's the way we're looking for it. So, what have I been waiting for in order to be content? What is it that I have been thinking will make me happy? Would I actually be happier if I, had, if I actually had what I wanted? Am I angry at God because I don't have what I want? Because that's the next step, right? Now, if, when we recognize that God is sovereign and we recognize that God is good, and he has not given me what I deem is good for me, then it's easy to point a finger at God and become angry at him. Instead of saying, oh, maybe my desire is not good, so I need to align that with God's. Why am I unhappy with my husband, my marriage, my children, my home, etc.? What expectations do I have that aren't being met? Do I have a right to be upset if my expectations are never met? These are the kind of questions that you need to ask yourself if you want to get to the root of discontentment. Be willing to do the hard work. And that's going to mean that you're going to have to like think about it and contemplate and pray about it and study scripture to identify it. So then B, we need to repent of our sinful discontentment. So Psalm 32.5 says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So this is obviously a huge part of the Christian life. We have to live a life of continual repentance before the Lord, confessing our sin and choosing to put our sin off and then live in a manner that is pleasing to God and righteous, This is our entire Christian life. But so often in our world, of course we're not going to hear about that, but even in Christian circles, we hear, we need to be content, we need to be content. And that's true, we do. But to be content means we need to identify the sin that is keeping us from contentment and repent of that sin and confess it to the Lord and then choose the things that do express contentment to the Lord. We aren't going to change if we aren't identifying the sin and repenting of it. As the Lord reveals your sin, repent, confess your sin to him, and begin taking steps to change. If you've been sinning against your husband, acknowledge your sin to him and ask for his forgiveness. This is really important to your relationship with your husband so that he can see your humility, he can see your desire to live with him, in a loving manner, to be respectful, to be submissive. We often want to change to become more godly in areas such as contentment, but the problem is, is we aren't always willing to do what needs to be done. We want the Christ-likeness without the work, without the humility, and without the repentance. So then what ends up happening? We never ever make any actual progress We aren't actually sanctified because we talk about it, we hear about it, but we don't do the work to actually change it. So then C, we need to change how we think. So Romans 12, two, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, what? By the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So we have to recognize the areas of sin in our life, and in order to put them off, we need to then recognize what we need to put on, and we have to change how we think about it. The Christian life is lived out first in the mind. How we think determines what we believe, and what we believe determines how we live. If you want to learn to be content in your marriage and content with your husband and children that God has given you, you need to think biblically about marriage. It is extremely helpful to read books on the topic, and I have given you guys a lot of different uh, resources that you can read, refer to, and all of that. Keep your mind saturated in God's purpose for your marriage and your role as a wife. So studying marriage for a year, do you think it has had any impact on my marriage? Yes, of course, because I'm always thinking about it. I'm always teaching on it. And so I'm constantly thinking and evaluating my heart and life. It is so helpful. Do you know how many times, whatever topic it is that we're studying, and of course, something pops up because that's the goodness and kindness of the Lord. So I get to practice before I come tell you guys. But it's the fact that my mind is saturated in the topic through the Word of God, that I am prepared to be able to respond rightly. Do I always respond rightly? No, but the Holy Spirit uses the truth of God's Word that is being implanted into my mind, and if I am sinful, what is going on? I've got my conscience going off, and the Word of God going through my head, reminding me that I am being sinful, or else if I've chosen not to sin and to respond rightly... I still have the word that is guiding me and helping me. That's the way it needs to be for all of us. But the problem is, is if we aren't reading about it, we aren't studying the word, we aren't memorizing scripture, there's nothing to draw from. And so when the difficulties in marriage come, we're without resources. So we have to make it a priority. So then D, we need to destroy worldly thinking. So 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This means that we need to eliminate worldly influence that affects how you think. So obviously we can't, we live in the world, we can't eliminate all worldly influence. But we need to be mindful of unnecessary influence that is, is influencing us to the point that we are desiring the things of the world or we are thinking like the world. We cannot afford to be thinking like the world. So Romans 13, 14 says this, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. So make no provision for the flesh. If you have an area in your life that you struggle with discontentment. Do not keep putting yourself in a position to receive worldly advice, messages, influence, advertisements, whatever it is that is going to continue to encourage you to continue to have that wrong mindset. Instead, remember, cut off the hand, gouge out the eye, do whatever you need to do so that you can make no provision for the sinful flesh. So what influences in your life lead you toward ungodly thinking about your husband and marriage? You really need to take time to consider the answer to this question. So I could give you a thousand suggestions and give you nice little neat lists, and I've already given you some nice little neat lists tonight, but I thought... I don't, I don't think I'm going to give you ideas right now because I think really this is between you and the Lord. You need to evaluate your heart. What are the areas that you are discontent in your marriage, with your husband, in your home, in your family? What are the places that you struggle? Because it's going to be different for each one of us. And I'm always amazed when we get into small group, like I think about certain things on my little list, and then we talk in small group and I'm like, oh, yeah. I? Oh, yeah, because we're all different. We're all influenced differently. And so, what are those things? As you discover worldly influences that contradict God's instruction on how to love and submit to your husband, you need to eliminate them if possible. And if it isn't possible because it's your mother, then you need to learn how to measure the things that she says against scripture. This is really important because there are certain things in life we just can't eliminate. And you know, that whole idea about boundaries and all of that. eh. Okay. So we need to look into scripture and we need to, to identify are the things that this message that I'm being told is that biblical or is it worldly? And we won't know if we don't know the teaching of scripture. And so we have to go to scripture to identify that. And if it is someone close to you, like your mom or grandma or mother-in-law or whatever it is, or a close friend, then in grace and kindness, you explain, if, if it's appropriate, why you wouldn't take that advice and what the word of God says. So that you still are not being influenced by it. You can recognize it, but it doesn't have to dictate how you act and what you think. So then E, remind yourself of God's goodness and sovereign purpose. And of course, we have to go to Romans 8.28 and remind ourselves there. Uh, It's actually 8.28 and 29. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren." So, we have to constantly keep in mind that God is sovereign. He is fully in control of all things. And He is absolutely good. And everything that He brings into our life is good. If we don't believe that, we will be discontent because we're always going to be looking for something else that we deem to be good. And keep this in mind. A couple verses later Romans 8, 31, and 32. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This is how we know the goodness of God, because he has given us the thing that is most important. He has given us his son, that we might be saved from eternal wrath and judgment. That's how we know God is good. And I'll tell you, I know, because I know wrestling through a trial, you can know this and have no emotion to it at times if, if your trial is very difficult. But by faith, we still counsel our hearts according to this truth. This is true, even if in this moment I feel like it's not true. And the thing that I want is so important to me. There, that's where we confess it to the Lord. We go to Him in prayer. Lord, you know in this moment that I I want that. I want deliverance from this tra- this trial more than I am thankful for my eternal salvation in this mo- moment. Please forgive me. Please renew my heart that I would. That I would be ever so grateful for what you have provided. That that thing that I want means nothing in the scope of what you've already done. Do you see how this works? It's a continual thinking through your mind. Renewing your mind according to scripture. And standing firm on those truths at all times. You're weeding your garden. You are counseling your heart. You're wiping little heinies. You're renewing your mind in the truth of Scripture. You're doing the dishes. Whatever task God has given you to do, you are constantly thinking through the truths of Scripture. Little people are talking to you. You're thinking, how do I respond so that they know I love Jesus and they need to love Jesus? Do you see it's an entire mindset? It's an, it's an entire uh, consuming way to live every day consumed with who God is, and we can only know that from his word. God is working in us to mold and shape our character so that we we will be like Jesus Christ. We like the idea of being like Christ, but we aren't very fond of the means God uses to make us like him because he often uses trials to accomplish it. The Apostle Paul, you remember, he longed to know Christ. He said that several times. But he acknowledged that knowing Christ came through sharing in the suffering of Christ. Philippians 3.10, he said this, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. We know Christ as we suffer, not because of our sin, as we suffer for what is righteous and what is good as the trials come into our life and we respond rightly. We know Christ more deeply. As a result, Paul didn't despair in his suffering. We must likewise learn to see the value of our sufferings. Rather than trying to escape them in discontentment, we need to value them for what they are accomplishing in our lives as we seek to please God in the midst of them. And I will agree that at times, you know, there are times when we just really don't care because I want out of this more than I want to rejoice in this suffering. But again, we have to work at renewing our mind in the truth of Scripture, crying out to God to help us to have the right response. If we are dealing with trials in our marriages, difficult trials, we must begin to see them as God's pathway to holiness and likeness. We must recognize that He is wholly good and in His sovereignty has brought this difficulty into our life to bring good to us. Instead of despising the difficulty, learn to trust God and value it as an opportunity to deny yourself and reflect the heart of Christ toward your husband. So, F, we need to embrace trials and difficulties and suffering. So do you know why Paul was able to suffer hardship without despairing, losing heart, and abandoning hope? Paul was satisfied in Christ. Christ was always at the center of his purposes and desires. He never lost sight of Christ. James 1, 2 through 4 says, "'Consider it all joy.'" And I know we go back to this continually, like in all different circles, because this is the attitude that we should have toward our trials. Consider it all joy, my brethren, you encounter various trials. Why? Because the trials produce endurance, which produce maturity. So instead of despising the trials, even in our marriages, we should be thankful for them because even with our husbands and in our marriages, the the places where we knock heads and we don't agree and find that there are difficult things, those are the things that God will use to conform us to the image of his son. So G, avoid comparing yourself to others. And this is massively important How devastating it is when we compare our husbands and marriages to other people. God has made each person unique and each marriage unique. Everything is different. Our struggles, our strengths, our spiritual gifts, our resources, our circumstance, our pasts. Why would we compare our husband to somebody else's husband? God is the one that is grading our lives. It is our responsibility to simply obey his word, comparing our husbands to someone else, doesn't fall into that category. we got to be so careful because that's the temptation. If we are walking through a difficult time, it's easy to look at somebody else. Well, look at him. He, he does this. He's more spiritual. He, cares. he has a better quiet time. Whatever it is, you don't know. You're not married to him. You don't live with him. You don't know. Don't compare your husband to him. So H, put off sinful living and put on righteous living. So you remember Ephesians 4, through 24. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So we are going to, from that... The put off and the put on. We're going to really quickly jump here to number three, Roman numeral three on your outline. How do we put on righteous living that leads to contentment? And of course, I've already taken so much time on everything else. We don't have tons of time for the how, and that's what I really wanted to talk about. Anyways, so we really need to go on the offensive here. So a lot of times we focus on the put off, the put off. I need to not be discontent. I need to not be discontent. We need to go on the offense of what should I be doing? Because the things that we should be doing when we engage in those things, it is going to help us automatically to be content because we aren't going to be focused on all the other things. If we're doing the right thing, it keeps us from doing the wrong thing. If if our mind is filled with the truth of God's word, it's not being distracted by all these other things. So A on your outline, replace your discontentment with practicing love. So don't wait for your husband to love you first. Think of little ways to love him Go out of your way. Seek to woo him with your loving kindness. Be willing to joyfully sacrifice yourself for him. So make his favorite dessert or dinner. Plan a surprise date night and, and include intimacy as the grand finale. It's important. He'll be happy. Practice sane, kind things. Tell him you love him. Greet him and tell him goodbye with a hug and a kiss. Be affectionate with him. When you're walking by, just brush his shoulder. Pat him on the backside. You know, all those good things. They're important. And this is how we show our husbands that we love them. But a lot of times we get so focused on whether or not they're loving us to our degree that we aren't on the offense just loving them. We need to always have this attitude of pursuing them to love them. B. Replace your discontentment with thankfulness. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Spend time every day thanking the Lord for your husband. Make an ongoing list that you can add to that outline that outlines specific things you are thankful for. It's very important, especially if you are going through a rough spot You need to remind yourself of the blessing of your husband and learn to be thankful. Make a habit of telling him thank you for something. Every day, thank him for something. Surely, there is something you can thank your husband for. Being thankful goes a long way toward loving our husbands. Notice the little things he does that make your life easier and express your gratitude. C, replace your discontentment with practicing the fruit of the Spirit. Consider each characteristic that is listed in Galatians 5, 22, and 23. You know, it lists the fruit of the Spirit there. And think about ways you can practice these things toward your husband. And you can do the same thing with the love chapter as well in 1 Corinthians 13. What can you do to show him kindness or goodness? What can you do to show him that you love him like some of those other ideas, but consider this and it's going to require time and effort. D, replace your discontentment with prayer. Colossians 4, 2, devote yourselves to prayer. It says, make a list of scriptures that you can begin praying for both you and your husband. And we can, and I I do recommend praying for your husband and praying through scripture. And one of the passages that's helpful is 1 Timothy 3, where the uh, qualification for elders, but here's what you have to guard against. You can pray those things. They're good things to pray for, but don't you be being stinky when he doesn't quite live up to all of them exactly the way you think he should. Give him room to grow and then pray for yourself that you would not be the contentious wife and, you know, all those other things. So have a really good list for yourself to pray as well. E, replace your discontentment with learning God's word. Psalm 119.73 says, Your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Make use of the opportunities you have to learn God's word. B faithful to be in it. Be consistent, really strive for that. And I know when you have little kids and they're sick and all of that, it can be really hard, but really strive as much as you're able to be faithful to be in the word. If you read a book, finish it. If you start a Bible study, finish it. Always be willing to stretch yourself to learn God's word. You can't be lazy. You can't be distracted. What you do spend a lot of time oh sorry, what do you spend a lot of time thinking about? What are the things that you post on Facebook and Instagram? Are those things eternal? Again, evaluating your heart here. What are the things that are most important to you? Because you need to learn God's word so that it will influence these things. Will those things that you spend a lot of time on, will those things go with you when you leave this earth? And I already mentioned some of these, but schooling, diet, home, property, animals, vacations, hobbies, styles, trends, entertainment, birthing plans, immaculate homes, yard work, retirement plans, all of those things have no eternal value. They're okay in their place but they should never come before your time in the Word, before your time meditating on the Word, before your time memorizing the Word. We need to prepare for meeting our Savior, and knowing the Word of God and obeying it is most important. Be so very careful not to value those things above their rightful place of temporal preferences. Know God, know His Word, and obey it. So F, replace your discontentment with Scripture memory. And you know Psalm 119, 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. And that's why we had memory here in this Bible study, uh, because it's important. You have to hide God's word in your heart. G, replace your discontentment with meditation. And this is thinking about how your life needs to conform to scripture Psalm 119.15 says, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. This is absolutely vital. Our society is entirely stripping away the ability to think. We have got to be different. We have to be examples to the next generation. We have to continue to think. Make time to think. Turn off the TV. Set aside the phone. Do whatever you need to do to have quiet, and I realize with little kids it's not always possible, but that's a different kind of distraction than your your social media kind of distraction. Set those things aside. Discipline your mind not to think of useless temporal things. Learn the art of meditating on God's word for the purpose of obeying it. And H, replace your discontentment with teaching your children. So I'm not going to read it, but Deuteronomy 6... Five through seven, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and daughters. Remember that, um, to love the Lord your God. Focus time and energy on teaching your children to know who God is. They won't naturally want it. Why would they? So you have to take the initiative. You have to be the one to teach them. But when your mind is filled with a desire to teach your kids, you're not going to be thinking about all the other things that the world is offering because you have an important task and purpose in front of you. Research to, to get good books, good Bible story books, all the different things that are helpful for, for teaching your children. And I replace your discontentment with service to others. And oh, how, okay, so how does this work in marriage? Because we're talking about marriage. What about service to others? Why is this important? Because depending on where your marriage is and all that kind of thing, if you are loving and serving others, it is going to help you to be content because your life and your your personhood has a purpose because you are, you are um, helping other people in their need. You are lifting their burdens. You are caring for them. You are even seeing their burdens compared to your own and realizing you aren't alone in the wrestles that you have. There's so much value to this. And it eliminates dead time that is used by Satan and the world to influence our mind to discontentment. So with all those things, let's pray and you guys can go to your small groups.